Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is St. Augustine's City of God Against the Pagans, a massive, massive work in length as well as a massive, massive impact on Western civilization, theological thought, political thought, pretty much everything you can imagine. I would personally retitle this in which Augustine's mind wanders freely over all of human and divine knowledge and only every so often gets back to the point at hand. So, (laughs) reader or auditor be warned, most of the city of God is not really focused on the famous topic of the city of God or specifically on uh, the coexistence of good and evil and political systems. It is an encyclopedic work in the way that ancient authors love to do. I should mention here that I actually listen to this on an audiobook edition because I knew I would never sit down and read the whole thing. And uh, it was, I think, 42 hours, maybe 46. I would not advise this. It didn't really start getting good from book 19. <laughs> and when I went back to take my notes, I just flipped through the print copy we had. Uh, my husband uh, had it from graduate school and read the whole thing. And I found that reading the titles actually did a pretty good job of giving you an overview. So anyway, uh, you, you've been warned. Don't do that. Well, I have to say, the younger generation gets away with murder. Uh, I can't imagine having the opportunity to listen to The City of God as an audiobook. Like your husband, I dutifully read the whole thing from cover to cover in graduate school. And you know what? I think I'm a little bit better off for it, if you don't mind my saying so. Like I said, I can't say that listening to it was really the most thrilling experience. So you're you're probably um, coming to this with a slightly uh, more enthusiastic attitude. So so tell us what the impact of the city of God was on you as a young reader and not listener. You know, I think when I was in seminary and even when I was in graduate school, uh, I didn't really appreciate it at that point. When I really started appreciating it, was uh, I started a theology reading group in uh, our last years in Bratislava, an English language. Some of the advanced students wanted to work on their English. And I said, let's read a classical text. So we took the abridged version of the City of God by... um, Abridged sounds like a good idea. Abridged, yes. Um, So it's a paperback uh, by Vernon Bork. That's right. That's a classic. It's an image double day book. It has a foreword by Etienne Gilson. And uh, we read this at the time after my mother's tragic premature death. And I was very much struggling with personally, existentially, with the fact that my, my mother uh, died unfairly at the hands of medical negligence at a younger age than she should have died. And the opening section of the City of God talks about this very problem of bad things happening to decent, good, decent people in the rape of the Christian women of Rome by the marauding invaders. And Augustine has an incredibly interesting pastoral approach because of the stigma of rape uh, in that culture many of these Christian women were tempted to suicide, thinking that they had been ruined or contaminated or stained beyond redemption. Life was no longer worth living. And Augustine pastorally, but also with theological insight, uh, makes the forceful argument that to be victimized by sin uh, stains the victimizer, not the victim. And therefore, that uh, none of these women should uh, feel the need to uh, end their lives to compensate for the damage that has been done to them. I know this sounds like a stretch in our culture, but I think with a little bit of imagination, you can see how pastorally and theologically Augustine is sensitive, not just to us as sinners who commit sin, but to us as those who are victims of sin. And of course, this raises the bigger issue of the justice of God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, How does God govern the world in such and such a way? 
And I found these discussions of the nature of evil, uh, the divine permission of evil and so forth in the opening books of the city of God, existentially as well as pastorally, very, very inspiring and helpful for me at that juncture of my life. Wow, I had no idea. That is really powerful. Yes, so I, I had a, a really intense relationship with Augustine from that point on in my life. Okay. I don't think anyone has a half-hearted relationship to Augustine. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, well, then let, let's uh, let's follow this line of theodicy, but let me just lay the, the groundwork for the book and, the, and Augustine's times in order to keep pursuing that. And I'd like to come back to the specific point you made there. So Augustine is born in the year 354. In 384, Theodosius, the emperor, outlaws pagan worship and makes Christianity the state religion. So it had already been tolerated under Constantine, but it became the state religion under Theodosius. Then in the year 410, so this is getting to later in Augustine's life, Alaric and his Visigoths sack Rome over the course of the three days. Now, if you're like me, dear listener, you had this image that there was glorious Rome, and then the barbarians came in, the Goths and the Visigoths, and they ran everything into ruin, and then we had the Dark Ages until Charlemagne in the year 800. That isn't actually what happened. (laughs) According to Peter Brown's The Rise of Western Christendom, in fact, uh, the barbarian argument was always a propaganda argument, because basically at this point, the central capital of Rome had moved to Byzantium in the east, which was always stronger, more centralized. It was based on cities and a better agricultural agriculture. But the Western Empire, by this time, actually, the capital was no longer really Rome, in, in name only. Um, Augustine goes to Milan because the imperial court itself was there. Only the Pope was stuck back in Rome, um, backwater that it had already become. And then there were a lot of regional capitals all the way up into France, and across North Africa and throughout um, Italy. So the Western Roman Empire at this point is a multi-center place, which means that you have a lot of competing power among Roman generals. And because this is pre-modern warfare, they hire mercenaries who happen to be those Goths and Visigoths and so forth. But they, in the process, get totally Romanized and learn Roman warfare. And then when they don't get paid or they see how incompetent their officially Roman bosses are, they just say that they've had enough of it. And so they come attacking. But really, it is internal to Rome. It's not the bad guys on the other side of the river. That was that was kind of a surprise for me to uh, to see. It. it puts the thing in new light. The point is, for Augustine and his contemporaries who are closer to the centers of, of Rome itself, the attack of Alaric on Rome was not that physically damaging to the city. It was not the end of the Roman Empire. But man, was it a blow to Rome's ego as the eternal city and totally secure and beyond beyond the reach of any other power. And so Augustine, he doesn't actually start writing the city of God until a few years later in 413 and doesn't finish it till 426, um, at which point, you know, Rome, such as it is in the West, is trucking along. Um, so it's really addressing the ego, the, the nationalist or imperial ego of Rome and its pretensions to be eternal and totally unharmed. So the immediate cause of the opening books where Augustine starts his argument is that some of the older Roman families are saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe the reason our city got attacked is because we gave up on the pagan worship that sustained Rome low these many centuries. I know it's Christianity that has fatally weakened us and offended the gods, and that's why we're in such trouble now. So that is the the providential or theodicy argument with which Augustine begins his plan of attack in the city of God. Exactly. He has to respond to this um, neo-pagan attack that Christ is the cause of the fall of Rome and restoration of the old order, which Julian the apostate, the uh, Roman emperor of the previous century, had actually tried to do in the interregnum between Constantine and Theodosius. And it's interesting that the arguments are always that because Christianity uh, offers a different kind of society with a different kind of king uh, whose visible reign is not yet manifest but will be 
and so this is a pilgrim people on the earth who live by faith and who have no earthly home. All of these messianic themes are accused of being subversive of the, of the earthly city. How can you have a secure, unified temporal power when you have within its midst this fifth column of subversives who are the Christians, who say that they'll be loyal to the state, but with a big condition that when it comes to the final obedience, they will obey God rather than human beings. And so the argument is always that the Christian presence is subversive of the power and unity of the state. That's what's really going on here in Augustine's defense of Christ as the promised and future king over against the temporary uh, regimes of the earthly city. You can see clearly why in, in far earlier Roman history, they insisted that everybody under their control had to make sacrifice to the Roman gods. Like you could keep your own religion, no problem, but you had to also sacrifice to the Roman gods. And that was the way of forcing you to enact that you will be loyal to the state no matter what. And your other gods are not going to compete with that loyalty. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so, Augustine has to undertake a massive research into the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he, in a nutshell, makes an argument like this, that the God of the Bible is the true creator of all that is not God, so that even the pagan history of Rome occurs under the watchful eye and purposes of God. And in that respect, uh, God uh, blessed Roman virtue, and now God is punishing Roman vice. What does Augustine mean by that? He basically looks at the pre-imperial Rome, the Rome of the Republic and of the laws, and talks about the virtue of the old Romans and their republic, but their idea that the uh, basic estates or classes of people in society uh, could work together in a representative way governed by a Senate, but even the Senate would be subject to the rule of law. And so this was kind of the old Republican order. And that ended with Julius Caesar in the century before Christ. Julius Caesar became the first military dictator who then was clothed in the crown as an emperor. No longer was Rome a republic. Now Rome was an empire. And it was a, a, a military dictatorship uh, that acquired its wealth by conquest and colonization from that point on, even though earlier, of course, in Roman history, there was some of that as well. And so then Augustine details all the civil wars and vices between the contenders for the imperial throne and talks about how that progressively weakened the Roman Empire in the centuries corresponding to the rise of Christianity and said God's judgment on Rome is quite independent of uh, its adherence or non-adherence to Christianity. It's judged on its own terms, by God's purposes for political estates. Yeah, it's striking both. I mean, that point specifically, I, I think now we would have the view that, you know, no institution or, or system can maintain itself indefinitely and grow indefinitely. And maybe this was the first time someone had really reflected on on that process of, of rise, but then decline, even though, of course, lots of umpires had come and gone before but what I really realized after looking over the whole entire book is that Augustine is basically dealing with all of known human history, obviously right. not of all actual human history, but he, he really is trying to tell the whole entire story, which is why this book is so long and why he has to sift through and re recount in such detail everything that's happening because he is trying to somehow read off the face of events the story of God's providence and finds that I, I think to be maybe more complicated than he believed it would be when he started. 
Yes, I think he, he found it to be quite complicated as he got into the project. But that's why George Lindbeck called uh, the City of God a world-absorbing narrative. And what he meant by that was that Augustine basically takes the Genesis to Revelation canon of the Christian scriptures as a kind of a God's eye view, a panoramic view of the entire story of humanity from creation to fall to the initiation of God's promises with the people Israel, uh, culminating in the Israelite Jesus of Nazareth, his life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised coming again as Lord of a redeemed creation, of a redeemed city of God. And he says, this is the story of the entire world we have in Scripture. Scripture is kind of like the synopsis of the whole world's story. It tells us who God is, who the persons of God is, what their interrelationships are, and it parses humanity into these two cities, the earthly city, which is governed by self-love, and the city of God, which is governed by the love of God above all and all creatures in and under God. And so that earthly history then becomes the tale of these two somewhat hidden forces and their interactions and combinations with each other in the uh, traversing of the path from Genesis to Revelation. Right. Though it turns out Revelation 2 and 3 are the longest chapters ever written. <laughs> because everything <laughs> is telescoped into them. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, one thing that, that struck me here, and I think you see this in the Greek fathers, too, is is Augustine is really is is making an assertion between competing histories, as you said, which is the true history. And therefore, he makes the move to say that Moses had to have predated all of the Greek philosophers and that they got their best ideas from Moses, not the right. other way around. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> a little bit of a wild claim, but you you can see through the literal error of that claim to see the theological agenda. The scriptural narrative is the master narrative, and all other histor histories have to be fitted into this master narrative. That's the project yeah. of the book. Yeah, I should note here, too, that this contrasts quite sharply with an Eastern attempt to write uh, a similar history that should be ascribed to Eusebius of Caesarea, a semi-Aryan and a great champion of the conversion of Constantine, who wrote the first history of the church in which the whole suffering of the martyrs was now completed by the conversion of Constantine to Christianity and the establishment of a Christian Roman Empire. And that is a perspective of Christian triumphalism. Uh, and it's not surprising then that Eusebius is semi-Aryan in his theology. That means to say that he subordinates Christ ontologically to God the Father, and then he correlates God the Father with the Emperor and God the Son, the subordinated Son, with the Church. And this is often led in Eastern Christianity to a kind of arrangements that's called polemically called Caesaropapism, in which the Church is fundamentally subordinated to the Emperor imperial uh, power. Augustine's city of God has nothing like that at all. He does not envision a triumphalistic church marching on to victory after victory until it is finally embraced in the arms of an imperial state and acquires world dominion that way. Yeah, he definitely speaks of the wisdom that comes from suffering and, and seeing past that, that triumphalistic pep talk. All right. Well, there's so many different directions we can go in. Let's just start briefly. I'd like to, to pick your brain about books one to 10, which is where Augustine um, really goes through the history of Roman religion and its religious claims in particular. Um, now, I have to say, Dad, listening to this, because I listened to it, I didn't read it. I, I just, it seems really ridiculous to me in the sense that Augustine took Roman 
pagan claims, stories, mythologies, practices with utter seriousness. And, you know, nowadays we'd honor someone who treats another religion with respect and not scoffing as a system. But it just seemed to me, I had the feeling that he was attributing to Roman religious practice the same kind of logic and integrity that you would find in Christianity. And I just felt that they were a total mismatch. And so much of his rhetoric is dependent on saying, look how utterly preposterous your claims are, because, for instance, you have many gods instead of one. And look how badly your gods behave. And look how badly things turned out when you did this. Um, so I, I was really having a hard time wondering, like, did this, did this actually convict anybody? And so the two proposals I have for why he takes this tack at such great lengths, and I'm curious to hear what you think, um, one of them is that by this time, actually, Roman religion had become more like Christianity under Christianity's influence and was trying to be more integrated of the system. So it did make sense to attack it on that level. And maybe a parallel would be, I, I understand that when Christian missionaries came to India and kept pressing Hindus to explain what they believed and why, it actually prompted the first kind of theological reflection and organization of thought in Hinduism that had never existed before because there was never any need. So it was actually the pressure of Christianity that caused that about caused that to come about. That's one prospect. The other is that you realize after a while that Augustine is really talking with or dialoguing with Varro, a Roman writer from several centuries before, who it seems did in some way try to systematize or give a full account of Roman religion. I think most of his writings are lost now, and what we know about them, we know mainly through Augustine. So maybe Augustine is picking out Varro because he's the one who conceptually makes sense to Augustine as the interlocutor, and therefore that's how the, the argument unfolds. But it doesn't necessarily mean that your average nervous pagan who was unhappy about the sack of Rome um, would necessarily construe his or her religion in that way. Yeah, those are two very good observations, Sarah, about the first 10 books of The City of God. Uh, let me try to respond to each of them. First, your observation is right. Christianity appears among the world religions to be rather unique in having such a focus on doctrine, um, on the knowledge of God that is safeguarded uh, and preserved in specific doctrinal beliefs. And uh, when Christians then meet other religions, uh, they tend to overlook what is central to the religions, which is the ritual practices. I mean, that's what, you know, uh, other religions really focus on is uh, the pageantry of the ritual and the way it organizes social existence and so forth and so on. That's why in a lot of religious studies today, the focus is always on practices rather than on beliefs, because belief is kind of imposing a kind of a Christian priority or, or category uh, as a frame of understanding other religions when the other religions should be understood in terms of their practices. Christianity, too, of course, is a, a, a system of practices that is connected or made coherent by a set of beliefs. So there's an overlap here in terms of practices. So I think you're right. I think, but more deeply, by Augustine's time, the civil religions of the Roman Empire had become pretty decrepit, by which I mean they'd lost their plausibility. And that's not because there's some, something wrong with them as such, but rather because of imperialism. Religions, civic religions in the ancient Mediterranean basin were local religions, much like Shinto was in Japan. They were local religions with local gods, with local holy places, shrines, portals between this world and the other world, that kind of thing. And they, they generated their own mythologies or stories uh, sacralizing these practices and uh, shrines and so forth. But when imperialism comes along, it has to override these local traditions. It has a cosmopolitan tendency, which tends to efface or, or degrade 
the density, the thickness, the attraction of local religions, and synthesize them into a pantheon in which then reflects the imperial political structure. Rome and its gods are at the head of the pantheon. All the local gods have to be fitted into it. Well, as that cultural process takes place, the local gods increasingly lose their plausibility and their attractiveness. And that's why you have all the mystery religions developing in the Hellenistic Roman Empire, because they were trying to answer spiritual needs that were no longer being met by the local pagan uh, traditions. It was also felt in Roman intellectual circles, even the educated Romans by Augustine's time were pretty embarrassed by the legends of the gods that are collected for the Latin-speaking culture in Virgil's Aeneids. And that's where Varro comes in. Varro was a Stoic philosopher who was trying very hard to rationalize these mythologies, to make them acceptable by showing that they were picture language for natural phenomena. And that was a kind of a process of demythologizing and rationalizing the Roman myths. Augustine drives a truck through that. If you Romans are embarrassed by these myths, well, let me tell you really why you should be embarrassed by these myths. <laughs> now, mind you, the little bit of dishonesty here is that Augustine was also deeply offended by the stories of the Lord, in the, especially in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. And it took him a long time to get used to reading the Old Testament scripture as a true narrative of the one God when he had identical objections to the crudity and violence attributed uh, and, and immorality and attributed to the gods in the Roman stories. But Varro actually serves him dialectically then. He's not really arguing with Varro. He's rather saying, Varro, you have to be more consistent and see that all of these gods are false gods and that you've been waiting for the self-revelation of the one true God. And that has come about in Christ. Oh, thanks. That was very illuminating. And so that explains then why the one non-Christian religion that Augustine can approve of in any measure is Platonism, or probably more like Neoplatonism by the time that he knew it. And it seems yes. for the two main reasons is that they, Platonists, pursue virtue rather than following the licentious example of the Roman gods, and because they posit some kind of ultimate divine being. And I, I'm reading underneath this, even though Augustine is a long way from his Manichaean youth, I'm guessing that what he likes so much about this is that it's a much more monistic system. There's no opportunity for an equal and opposite to, to God in an evil being that Manichaeanism promoted. Oh, absolutely. And it's important to recognize that Platonism and Gnosticism in their ancient, Near East, uh, ancient Mediterranean set, setting were cultural enemies. They were not, like a lot of moderns say, well, there's an anthropological dualism in Plato, mind is superior to body. And there's a severe ontological uh, dualism in Gnosticism. Spirit is trapped in the flesh to be liberated from it. Well, this is a, to modern people, this seems to be a deep doctrinal similarity. But in fact, in historically, Platonism and Gnosticism were arch enemies. Why? Mm. Especially Neoplatonism regarded this cosmos, this ordered creation, as a beautiful emanation or outpouring of the divine forms, which uh, crystallized themselves in material instances to make up the harmony of the whole structured cosmos, the whole structured world. And so the world was not intrinsically because it was still matter and matter is chaotic and unredeemable, but it was formed matter and formed into a beautiful harmony. And so Platonism was an optimistic and world affirming 
belief system uh, in contrast to the deep pessimism bordering, bordering on nihilism of the Gnostic beliefs, uh, which regarded this world as an abortion as something, you know, just to be discarded and discussed and fled from as soon as you could free yourself from it. And so Platonism really helped Augustine out of his Manichaeism. And that is reflected, I think, throughout the book City of God, especially in its discussions of the nature of evil. Right. So we, we often reflect on, on how Platonist ideas really interfere with biblical doctrine, but I, we can appreciate that what it did was detach Christianity from Gnosticism and Manichaeism altogether. Yes, it did. And and Augustine is, is acute enough to say, but the Platonists lack the one thing needful, namely the knowledge of the incarnation of the Logos in Jesus Christ. And lacking that, they lack the decisive thing. And that's why Platonism is not finally salutary. It can't redeem us. Uh, it can only help us understand the mystery that is Christ, the incarnate Logos. Right. right. Okay, great. Well, let's spend some time now actually on these two cities, which, like I mentioned at the beginning, don't, <laughs> don't occupy as such a huge amount of the book called The City of God. Um, so what Augustine's trying to, to get at here is looking at this vast human history that he has, you know, been working his way through. You can just, he sees in it two trajectories, one Godward and one in the opposite direction. And, but what I think is distinctive that he's trying to say here is that like the wheats and the tares in Jesus' parable, they are so utterly tangled up with each other that even though you can perceive and assert the existence of these two cities, you can't really delineate their boundaries. Um, for Augustine, this is partly because everyone, every human is created in the image of God, and equally every human is in a state of original sin. Uh, people love to, to keep um, calumny on Augustine now for his doctrine of original sin and how it made everybody feel terrible about having sex. But what it's really doing <laughs> here is leveling the ground between everybody. There's nobody who can opt out of this state of being a sinner. And actually what it does then is it restrains the uh, religiously aspirational or or um, deluded in their perfectionism. It says, no, you two are part of this body of original sin. And so that means that everybody, no matter which city they ultimately belong to, is going to have to deal with the loss of free will that comes with being a slave to sin, with the tendency to self-love or loving the wrong things generally, with the fear of death, and with the urge toward violence. And it's out of this perception of humanity's um, coexistence, despite having two ultimately different tendencies, that he's able to talk out questions about how we should live together and a little bit about the state, though, again, this is not really a political treatise. He has no ideal state to put forward, unlike Plato, who had a, a an ideal state that was um, horrifying. Yeah, that's very good, Sarah. Um, the um, Because even the city of God in human history begins uh, with redemptive action upon the city, the earthly city, the city of man, and it actually draws its membership from out of the city of man, though in a process that, like you said, Augustine thinks is quite mysterious and not always visible. He says at one point in the city of God, some of those who are in the church will not appear in the kingdom of heaven, and some who appear now to be among the wicked will surprise us in the resurrection of the righteous. You know, right. so yeah, he, this is really the city of God and city of man is not the difference between church and state, and it's not the difference between Christianity and other religions, and the distinction obtains within the church as well. He's very insistent on that point. In fact, Luther, Luther the way Luther modifies this in his own theology is he talks not about the city of God and the city of man, but he talks about the regnum Christi, and the regnum diaboli, the, the kingdom of the Christ and the kingdom of the devil. And I think uh, that the uh, that's Luther's way of rephrasing Augustine's distinction, which, which helps us see that the earthly city is uh, destined for 
destruction because its love is perverted to death and its telos, its, its, its objective end is annihilation or destruction or punishment or however Augustine imagines that in the end. That brings us to Augustine's doctrine of good and evil, which I think is very interesting and very helpful. It's not finally satisfactory to me, but it's a lot satisfactory to me. And let's just begin with this. Augustine meditates on the refrain repeated throughout the first chapter of Genesis. And God saw all that he created, and it was good, 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 very good. God delighted in the work of, of creation and rested in a sense of blessedness and fulfillment on the seventh day uh, in the work of creation. So picking up on this theme against his earlier Manichaean idea that matter, body, and uh, the visible created world was intrinsically evil and a snare, Augustine says, whatever exists, so far as it exists, can only exist as the good creation of God. All that God creates is good. Its very being is good. Now, this is an ontological, not a moral goodness. So that, for example, even the devil, as a creature of God, uh, is a good being. And evil then can only come about as a kind of parasitical perversion of what is essentially good. Uh, evil does, is not a thing. Evil has no being. Evil has no uh, concrete existence. Why? Because everything God created ontologically is good so far as it exists. What then is evil? Evil is a perversion of the natural tendency of existence to rejoice in the love and praise of the giver of life, its creator, God. Or as Augustine then condenses that thought, evil is a, a perversion of the will. It's a perversion of desire away from the source of being uh, to something that's false, that cannot provide the being that one wants to secure. And then that desire perverts and becomes captivated on things which are not God, and in this curvature away from God, becomes uh, uh, enters a trajectory whose conclusion can only be death as eternal separation from God. So instead of Manichaeisms or Gnosticism's equal and opposite powers of good and evil, Augustine is employing more of a Platonist or Neoplatonist scheme of evil as up and down a ladder, the most being at the top and least being at the bottom, and the way you are morally evil is being pointed downward rather than upward. So like you said, the, the will loving the things that it ought not love. But in that, that system, like you said, evil has no actual being or existence behind it. It's only a, a wrong direction of an otherwise good, ontologically good thing. Yeah, it's a corruption or per perversion of being by turning the, the, the entelechy of an existing thing away from the creator uh, towards the creature. So, you know, you could call this Platonist, but it's actually the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 that they exchange the immortal, the glory of the immortal God for creatures, right? That, that, that exchange uh, of the God, the creator's glory for uh, the image of creatures in Romans 1. Uh, I, I think this is a very important point because for Augustine, there is a, a, a ontological hierarchy, uh, which is simply, and very simply, the creator is the creator of everything that is not God. This is the basic distinction, creator and creature. And it's a hierarchy. The creator is the Lord, the sovereign, the God, uh, and the creature is his product, if I can put it so crudely. 
right? And so there is uh, no creature, no creature has intrinsically the value that the creator intrinsically possesses. And therefore, it's simply a matter of truth to love the creator above all and correspondingly to love all the creator's creatures equally with the love one has for one's own self as a creature of God. That's the order, Ordo Caritatis, the order of love, which reflects Augustine's interpretation of Jesus's double love commandment. So I I am strongly drawn to the the sin or evil as misdirected love's arguments, but I've never been as fully convinced by the evil as purely privative argument. And you mentioned that you didn't find this completely satisfying, just mostly satisfying. So why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, in my systematic theology, I try to talk about actual evil. And again, I don't like Augustine. I don't want to say that evil is a thing, right? I don't want to say that anything is evil. Everything that exists has a good purpose in God's creation. And that includes some of the very perverse things. So it seems to us like mosquitoes. When you were a little girl, I remember one time at a park, you were getting stung by mosquitoes. And you said, Mommy, Mommy, why did God make mosquitoes? <laughs> to which I, I interrupted and said, to feed the swallows and the other birds. You were not satisfied with that explanation. <laughs> but I, I, I think, you know, in a more ecologically holistic understanding of life on the earth, Uh, We've come to appreciate Augustine's insight here uh, that there's nothing that's intrinsically evil. All creatures exist to fill a niche in a vast and complex ecosystem, and none of them should be regarded as targets of uh, destruction. Now, we get into difficult cases like cancer cells or viruses or something like that. Let's not let's not go off track and talk about those things at the moment, just to get Augustine's basic idea, which is a very ecological idea. Okay. And so uh, that means that sin cannot be identified with any creature per se. It can only be identified in two rather distinct ways. For Augustine, there is natural evil and there is moral evil talking about the perverted uh, will, the corrupted desire, that would be the concept of moral evil, uh, right? But Augustine also talks about natural evil. And natural evil simply means I'm not God. I'm not God. I'm a creature. That means I have a beginning and I have an end. All things creaturely have a temporal duration, a lifespan. That includes empires, that includes galaxies, it includes the entire cosmos. The cosmos had a birth in the Big Bang and the cosmos will have a death in the Big Freeze or something like that. All creatures are temporal, they have a duration. And that means because they don't have life of themselves, because they exist only by interacting with other organisms, creatures, physical forces, etc., etc., they are ontologically in their very being vulnerable. And vulnerability is the root of the experience of pain and pleasure. Pleasure attracts us to what protects us. Pain attracts, deflects us from what hurts us. So pleasure and pain all the way down into our biological being, all the way down, uh, reflects this being ontologically vulnerable. No creature can be conceived to exist without ontological vulnerability. And that's what Augustine means by natural evil. Now, how do these two connect? Very profound insight, if you ask me. When I will not own up to 
my ontological vulnerability, when I will not own my own pain and find the spiritual resources, to put it in Jesus' words, to take up my cross and follow him. If I don't find the resource to own my own pain and take it up, what do I do with it? What do I do with the pain that befalls me, quite apart from my moral goodness or my moral evil? What do I do with my pain? And I think Augustine's insight is that the real origins of the perverse will of corrupted desire are the prideful attempt to secure an invulnerability that makes me immune to pain, that's pride, or it is a desperate attempt that lashes out blindly to destroy whatever is out there that might, to which the cause of my suffering might be attributed, and that would be the sin of despair. So the origins of moral evil lie in the loss of a spirituality that enables one to maturely accept one's own finitude, one's own pain, one's own inevitable uh, decline and death, uh, what Ernst Becker called the denial of death some years ago in a very interesting book. So pain is the cost of being alive. Yes, just as joy is the dessert of being alive, right? Or pleasure is the... But you don't get to opt out of the pain. It is, and, and no. this is, I think, where where you hit the limit of any theodicy or providence question, which we should turn to now, which is, but why, Lord, did you build a system in which pain was possible and vulnerability was possible? And that's that's where one of those stop signs exists beyond which you cannot go. Well, I, I think you can go a little ways. I, you're right. Ultimately, the way pain and pleasure are distributed to the righteous and the uh, unrighteous does raise questions that cannot uh, honestly be answered and should not even tr- perhaps be tried to be answered uh, yeah, in, until the light of glory. Uh, but I do think there is some light to be shed here, that I'm nothing special. I am a creature alongside all the other creatures. I am vulnerable. Jesus says the rain shines, uh, the heavenly father has the rain fall upon the righteous and the uh, wicked alike equally. Uh, I'm not special, even as a believer, even as a Christian, even as a redeemed child of God. I'm a qua creature, I'm not special. I am exposed to suffering and pain just like all other creatures. Moreover, I'm a member of a society. And God's providence is often working socially upon social formations so that I might be a righteous person in a wicked empire. But when God's judgment falls upon the wicked empire, it will crush me just like those Christian women in Rome were raped by the marauders. It will happen right. when that, that uh, judgment falls upon a wicked nation, that there also the innocent will suffer with the righteous. Yeah. Well, I think Augustine improves on this topic over the course of the book, because um, in that opening, um, the first book of the City of God, when he talks about the nuns, he actually entertains at some length the prospect that maybe the nuns were too proud of their chastity and God was teaching them a lesson with the rape. A is repugnant beyond belief. And, I, I, you know, he, he encourages them to, to think over this hard. But it, it, if it wasn't a problem of pride, then no, it wasn't punishment. Okay, thanks, Augustine. Very comforting. But um, I think that uh, this, I'd like to actually read this passage because I, I find this is now in, chapter, in book 20, so, so close to the end. And I think he finally, um, I think sifting through all of human history has given him a greater measure of uh, humility and in trying to interpret world events. So he says, divine doctrine conduces to our salvation, even in circumstances where divine justice is not apparent. For we do not know by what judgment of God this good man is poor, while that wicked man is rich. We do not know why this man is joyful, even though, as we judge the matter, his abandoned morals render him worthy to be tormented with grief. We do not know why that man whose praiseworthy life persuades us that he ought to be joyful, is nonetheless sad. 
We do not know why an innocent man can leave the court not only unvindicated, but actually condemned, either oppressed by the injustice of the judge or overwhelmed by false evidence. We do not know why, by contrast, his wicked adversary reveals him as he goes his way not only punished, but even vindicated. Uh, unpunished, but vindicated. We do not know why the ungodly man lives in the best of health while the pious man wastes away in sickness. We do not know why young men who are robbers enjoy excellent health, while infants who could not hurt anyone, even with a word, are afflicted by all manner of dreadful diseases. We do not know why one who plays a beneficial part in human affairs is snatched away by premature death, whereas one who, as it seems to us, ought never to have been born at all, lives on long beyond the normal span. We do not know why one whose life is full of crimes is crowned with honors, while the man who is without reproach lies buried in the darkness of unrecognition. Who could collect or enumerate all the other examples of this kind? Yeah, right. Uh, very well. I said, find that yeah. refreshing humility. <laughs> refreshing humility. Yet, let me complicate it for you a little bit. Augustine okay. is making this argument saying that if the horizon of our expectations is purely temporal, if it's purely happiness or sorrow in this life, these conundrums will beset us. But that's not finally the perspective in which these uh, difficulties are to be assessed for Augustine. For Augustine, I return again to the order, order of love, the ordo caritatis, the hierarchy of being. What makes the consolation of the believer triumphant, even in the midst of injustices and sorrows, is the firm persuasion that the destiny of the believer is inclusion in the beloved city of God that is coming in the light of glory. And Augustine's theodicy is, of course, very vulnerable to criticism here. But it's also Martin Luther's theodicy. At the end of the bondage of the will, he says, there is a resurrection, and all that is unjust and uh, that goes unpunished now will be requited there, and all that who have been innocent uh, and victimized will be rewarded there. There is a resurrection. We don't yet see that. We await for it in faith, but we can await for it in faith. It's Paul's theodicy. The sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Well, I mean, okay, so, I mean, doctrinally, of course, I would not disagree with you, Augustine Luther, or Paul, but let me push back again in the other direction in terms of the accessibility of that affirmation to faith. So two examples, and I think this may be something that has become more urgent for our time. Uh, though the first one goes back to the 16th century, which is that when the Jesuits um, brought Christianity to Japan, um, it did not take long for the Japanese who did not like this new religion to realize that creating martyrs was a really bad idea. It only made Christianity stronger. And so that's why they stopped creating martyrs and instead destroyed people but kept them alive. And the, the famous novel and now movie Silence by a Japanese Christian author is about the pressing and pressing and pressing upon Christians until they cracked. And so that even a, a famous Jesuit um, teacher and leader ended up apostatizing and becoming a, a Buddhist um, evangelist and uh, propagandist for the rest of his life. They would not let people die. They used their pain and their their loves for one another to destroy them. I've also just been, and again, I'm listening, not reading, the Gulag Archipelago, and Solzhenitsyn records at great length all the ways in which the Soviet tormentors used uh, natural vulnerabilities, not simply to control people and not always to kill them off, but really with the express purpose of destroying their souls, of breaking them down yeah. until, you know, that like the famous ending of 1984, he loved Big Brother. Like that is the goal. So it's not actually just destroying them or having them experience physical pain now, but actually taking away even the soul that could still hang on in faith waiting for the light of glory. So yeah. I, again, this, this might be the, the horrible genius of modernity and our technology and our ideology 
that we can crack <laughs> and people beyond, like not even honor them with death, but keep them alive as cells of themselves. Uh, so I guess that that's the one place where I'm dissatisfied with the, um, you know, hang on and believe in the light of glory argument. Right. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think it amounts to an argue, argument for the reality of the demonic. Uh, I mean, this kind of torture that you're describing uh, is a actualization of evil. That's what I call it, actual evil. Again, evil's not a thing, but evil is uh, this act, this this way of acting that, as you said, uh, does not aim merely uh, to torture the body and murder it, but through the torture of the body to subjugate the soul. Uh, that's I can't think of a more precise def definition of the demonic than that. And I think where Augustine, in his overriding conviction about the sovereignty of God, uh, who has been in control from beginning to end, and everything is taking place according to his providential plan, uh, the apocalyptic conflict between the Regnum Diaboli and the Regnum Christi is somewhat mitigated here. And I think you're making an argument that in some serious way, a theology of the demonic uh, personified in the figure of the devil uh, has to be restored to the Augustinian perspective. Now, Augustine, of course, has a theology of the devil, and the devil with all the wicked angels is going to be damned eternally, and that's the definitive separation of the city, the earthly city, from the city of God, and so forth and so on. But because of the strong emphasis, the anti-Gnostic, anti-Manichaean emphasis on the integrity of creation, there's a, it seems to me that, that this way of thinking is vulnerable to always minimizing the actuality of evil. Mm. Well said, well said. Now, I think here, this is, and maybe this is a good way to start wrapping this up, then what what finally is the deep the deep weak spot in the greatness? I hope the whole podcast has indicated to the reader a great admiration and uh, earnest desire that uh, theology today become more Augustinian in many respects. But I think there is one serious weak spot in it that's connected to this problem of actual evil. And that's Augustine's idea of divine timelessness, what sometimes is called the eternal now. So here, here's the problem. Augustine says, if God is the creator and God in God's perfection and simplicity, how can God be conceived to act at all, conceived even to initiate a creation? How can a timeless God act temporally? And as Augustine ponders this question with the, I think, uncritical assumption that comes from his drinking at the well of Platonism, that eternity must mean divine timelessness. And it must mean that God's perfection is that God is already fully whatever God can be. Thomas Aquinas later called this octus purus, that God is pure act. That means there's no potentiality left in God. God is entirely actual, no potential at all. Ergo, God cannot do anything new for God. God already is perfect, perfectly whatever God is. And that's why God is timeless, because there's no variation, change, or movement in God's own being. So then how, if that's true, how do you conceive of a creation? How does God even get creation started? And Augustine thinks that this is an eternal act of cognition, that God in a simple self-reflection uh, projects outwardly an entire panorama of the divine richness schematized into a space-time panorama. So in one simple act of cognition, God sees and wills 
everything from Genesis to Revelation. Right down, Sarah, to this conversation that you are having right and I are having at this very moment. Everything unfolds as the actualization of God's eternal intuition of the creation. Well, if that's true, then the devil and his rebellion and the actuality of evil must all be fitted in to this eternal plan. And with that, the painful reality of moral evil personified in the devil, I think, is domesticated. And in addition, you can't conceive of God more biblically as the one who has endless possibilities to actualize. The omnipotence of God in Scripture, I think, is much more to be conceived of along with the prayers in the New Testament. With you, all things are possible. God is perfect, not in already being everything God can be timelessly, but God is the infinite source of new possibility. I know that sounds like process theology, and I certainly don't mean it in the sense of process theology. I mean it in the sense of scripture. Right. No, but but you can see actually going philosophy first is dangerous here, because how is providence not fatalism? And the way I hear a lot of well-meaning Christians talk providentially, it's very hard to see how it isn't purely fatalistic, always blessing the status quo. Everything happened for a reason. Your only problem is that you haven't figured out why you were the one carried off by the Soviets in the night and had your family until you slandered your own mother, you know, so. Right. Now, we have to have a more apocalyptic theology, which allows for the reality of the Regnum Diaboli and its actual combat with the Regnum Christi. Uh, Of course, also here with Augustine, in a much wider panorama than simply a church-state conflict or a Christian culture versus pagan culture kind of schematic or something like that. It really is uh, the battle of God for the beloved community against all the forces that would uh, uh, torture and subjugate human souls. I mean, I think that's one way of describing the depth of, of, of demonic power that human beings come to desire their own subjugation. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I have to admit, one of the reasons I wanted to listen uh, slash read this book this year um, is because of what a difficult year it has been, and especially the political upheavals that I have never seen in my home country in all of my life. Uh, well, I'm not seeing it firsthand, of course, but reading about. And um, so I guess just to, to, to wind up, uh, I guess what my my takeaway for listeners, especially in the U.S., but anywhere that things are fraught right now, is that the city of God seems to be the deep roots of what would come to expression many centuries later as toleration. And this is not tolerance, which I think nowadays means more like you're not allowed to judge anything negative, but say everything is okay. But toleration is actually a much, much more profound idea, which is that it is better for us to coexist both cities at the same time because the cost of separating us now is so much greater and will do so much more harm. And therefore, if you are convinced that you are a member of the city of God, then that means an Augustinian sense or a John Lockean sense that you are opting into coexistence with the city of the devil because it is better than trying to pull away. And the reason why you can survive this is because you know that history's purpose does not end in itself. History, history's fulfillment is beyond itself. And so whatever is happening now, however wicked or trying or whatever kind of resistance you need to mount, you never have to be panicked that unless X happens, everything will fall to pieces. Yeah, things are going to fall to pieces and then they're going to come together again. And this is the, the ongoing struggle of these two cities. But the solution, there is, let's just say, if it's a final solution, it's never a good thing. The final <laughs> solution is not a human thing to pull off. That's right. So a, a, a mature, faithful acceptance of finitude 
the finitude of the cosmos, the finitude of our galaxy, the finitude of planet Earth, the finitude of the human race, the finitude of you and me. A mature acceptance of that is actually empowering because it allows us to live in creative love, even with others who otherwise seem to be hostile uh, or even uh, uh, acting on hostility against us. Uh, I think the what's so troubling about American politics today is the mutual self-righteousness and fanaticism that a- animates the extremes on either side of the political divide. Uh, and there's no concept here any longer of Martin Luther King uh, that uh, I will creatively confront my enemy with an indefatigable love until I win that enemy over to my to my uh, uh, friendship. I think yeah. that we have a, I like to put it this way in the Joshua commentary, a choice between a politics of purity, which finally results when taken to its logical extreme in the extermination of the opposition as a polluting source and a politics of reconciliation that begins vertically with every individual's reconciliation as a sinner with the Holy God uh, through the grace of Christ, but then takes on form in actual human bodies and human societies as a politics of reconciliation. Well, let us pray that 2021 can be a year where reconciliation is more of the, more of the story than the politics of purity. We Amen. That. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you, St. Augustine. I still appreciate you very, very much. <laughs> I do, too. I just wish you'd had a good editor. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, to our listeners, thank you very much for listening to us this whole year again. We will be back in, in January with season three of Queen of the Sciences. Between now and then, there will be two more bonus episodes for you to enjoy. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and see you in 2021. I say the same. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.